The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Something about the scene felt familiar and frightening to Judith. Her body activated symptoms she loathed. At the center of her core, she began trembling. The trembling rubbled deep within and then began moving out to her extremities. A wavy sense of lightheadedness began. Judith's heart was beating faster and faster, throat as dry as hot sand. I'm going to have a seizure. Her last seizure had been in the 1960s when she was only 23. To Judith, that had been a lifetime ago, and she believed she was free of seizures. Judith whimpered internally. From She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood. Welcome back, Murder Bookies. I am your host, Jill. Welcome to episode 59, part one, Medieval Times, on She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood. I have quite the story today, a very, very different story. Many times we've heard questions after a serial killer is arrested. How did the spouse not know? How did the family not know? It just seems unbelievable that a killer could conceal his true nature, and yet they do. Unfortunately, families come under attack on social media, which is a horrendously evil thing to do. So considering this, I decided to do a book on what actually happens during these relationships, marriages, at home, on holidays, in the normal daily life. And the perfect book is this one, She Married the Green River Killer. It is an authorized biography of Judith Ridgway, who is married to Gary Ridgway. November 3rd, 2003, Gary Leon Ridgway confessed to killing at least 48 women, but that number is likely dwarfed in reality. Gary now suggests the minimum count was 71, although it remains unverified. Now, since we are in Washington State, I found a hasty snack from that area, a vegetable strata. Vegetarians, you're going to love this, and actually anybody else because it's terrific. Asparagus, zucchini corn, fresh or frozen, shallots, garlic, sage, basil, parsley. You cut bread into cubes. You have milk. You have eggs, pecans, which are optional if nuts aren't your thing. You basically mix the ingredients together and pop it into the refrigerator for an hour. Then you bake it for 40 or 50 minutes. It can be made ahead of time and frozen, and there are defrosting instructions on my blog. It is such a nice addition to any book club. Absolutely delish. And I'm going to pair our vegetable strata with a crispy, dry white Arabella Sauvignon Blanc from 2021. It's a naked wine. You know that this is my favorite wine club. A South American wine from Stephen and Jamie DeWitt. This pale yellow wine goes perfectly with a vegetarian dish, shellfish, or another favorite of mine. Goat cheese. Aramaic. On the nose, it's like a lemon zest, maybe some lime, touch of mineral. Then you dive into this fruit bowl from the tropics. Kiwi, gooseberry, passion fruit. It's dry, 
not too sweet, medium level of acidic, and for sure, a crisp, crowd-pleasing addition to our book club. And one sip, you're going to know why. A bottle runs about $15, and it is discounted when you become a Naked Wines Angel. Then it is $9.99. You cannot beat it, and I love savings. So bon appetit, murder bookies, and let's get into our story. A little bit about author Penny Wood. She was born in Spokane, Washington State, and raised in the Seattle area, so this story resonated profoundly with her, living through the Green River Killer era. One of four children, Penny married and went on to raise a family while working in human resource management in the medical and dental field. Her fascination with people and the amazing experiences that they have inspired her to write, with her so appreciative of the opportunity to give voice to those without one. I completely share that sentiment. I want to add, on Penny's webpage, there is a quote from Judith Ridgway Mawson, and she says, quote, Telling my story has really helped me with healing and releasing the poison from what was held within for years. Penny has been wonderful. She has basically been by my side for years. End quote. Well, what a tribute to Penny's storytelling and respect for Judith. I can't wait to speak with Penny Wood, which will follow episode 61, second cast. Now, this is the second edition of the book being updated and reissued in 2021 comes in about 328 pages. The photos, however, give you such insight into Judith and Gary. So read the book. I'm telling you right now, I had to cut out the whole handwriting analysis section on Gary Ridgway. It is fascinating, but I just cannot cover everything, even though I try to give you the highlights. So she marries the Green River Killer, opens on November 30th, 2021. Gary wakes up at 3.30 a.m. to get ready for work, as he had for the last 32 years. Today was a bit earlier, as he was looking forward to two hours of overtime, which he always accepted. Wife Judith is smiling to herself. She's warm, comfortable in their bed, and rolls over. She heard the familiar sounds of Gary dressing, getting coffee downstairs, and leaving coffee for her for when she'd get up later. His lunch, made by Judith, Two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches were placed in his worn gray lunchbox, along with some munchies. Quote, she was one of the lucky ones. She had finally made it to a place in life she had never thought possible before. She was Mrs. Gary Ridgway. She had a good husband, a non-abusive husband, who earned a nice living so she could stay home and pursue her hobbies. And this morning was no different, end quote. Writes author Penny Wood. So we quickly get the comfortable normality of the Ridgeway routine in place for 14 years that enveloped Judith in a cocoon of love and security. Gary warmed his truck for about five minutes, listening to country music, and left on his commute from their home in Auburn to Kenworth Trucking, located in the Seattle area of Renton. He was now an advanced painter, grade one, an elite class among his peers. This was to be the final day of that routine, however. Neither Gary nor Judith realized that Gary would never come home again. Great sunlight strewn through the window, typical for autumn. While she didn't belong to a specific church, Judith held a reverence for God, believing she was blessed. In the past, she'd had to rely on God to get her through so much, so it was important for her to give thanks for that assistance. 
She was up around 8.30 a.m., dressing simply in their French provisional bedroom, complete with a canopy bed. She and Gary loved to go to garage sales, where they picked up pieces they loved here and there, like the antique crystal chandelier that hung in front of the bay window. Now, I have to tell you, this is not how I envisioned a serial killer's bedroom. I don't really know what I was thinking, but French provincial and canopies with antique crystal chandeliers was not even close. At age 57, Judith was five foot one or 1.55 meters, wore glasses, quote, and walked with a teetering motion back and forth from left to right, end quote. With a chronic back condition, Judith often woke up stiff with needles impacting her mobility. I get needles in my right hand stemming from an electrocution injury years ago. Well, I'm a veteran teacher, so, you know, you take your war wounds. So I do understand Judith here. Grabbing a blue fuzzy robe from the walk-in closet, Judith headed downstairs. It was time to watch Regis. Grabbing the coffee Gary left for her, she passed the double-sided fireplace that divided the living room and kitchen, only to be confronted by their two Siamese cats purring and arching their backs against her legs. Their sweet kitties were hungry. While they loved their fur babies, their poodle Oscar had held Judith's heart completely. Would she ever get over his loss? She and Gary had raised him from a pup, and it was as if, quote, their own child had died only four months prior, and the painful grief had not lessened. She missed him every day, end quote. Oh, I understand. We lost our kitty of 17 years a few months back, and I still miss her sweet little face. Well, then Gary's mother passed a month later, and Judith's eyes became misty. Bad things happen in threes, so what in heaven could be the third? Breakfast done for all three of them. Judith spent a few hours watching TV with the now-napping kitties on a dark burgundy lazy boy they inherited from Gary's mom. It matched the light cream, pink, mauve, and blue drapes. She planned to sort through some boxes, organizing for their final garage sale before winter set in. After her shower, she dressed casually. Pausing, she eyed the garage door. If she could clean out the boxes in there, she'd be able to park her car inside when it got really cold. Huh. Well, a few hours later, huffing and puffing, she'd made progress in dividing the items into trash, treasure, and garage sale. They spent a lot of time on the weekends cruising garage and estate sales. They regularly attended swap meets between Seattle and Tacoma, where people went to liquidation stores bargain hunting. Gary had introduced Judith to dumpster diving. In the truck, Judith was lookout while Gary inspected dumpsters for anything that they could use. All right, this is really, really gross to me, but hey, it is buried treasure to them, so to each his own. 3 p.m., crunching gravel signaled the arrival of a car, which had come down the Ridgeway Private Road, stopping out front. She had no idea who'd be coming by. The door rang. Judith opened the door, seeing a professionally dressed man and woman looking very serious. Who are these people, she wondered. Introducing themselves, they were Detectives Sue Peters and Matt Haney, startling Judith. Something was clearly wrong, and they moved into the living room to talk. They had some important questions to ask her, and could they record their conversation? Penny Wood describes Judith's state. Quote, she said, of course. 
Thoughts were racing in a figure eight pattern, like an airplane with no pilot inside her head. She could not understand why these authoritative people were in her house, end quote. Lightheaded, trembling, Judith feared she was about to have a seizure, like I indicated in our opening. The detectives began asking her about Gary, his son, his arrest a few weeks back, and had Judith known about it. Hands pressing on her temples, she confirmed that yes, Gary had told her, and that it was all a silly mistake. Gary was always friendly when they were out, and driving to work, he'd pulled over to fix the tailgate, waving at a woman. He'd been arrested for solicitation of a prostitute, a crazy mix-up. The room morphed into the Charlie Brown cartoon teacher talking, as detectives' mouths moved, but she couldn't really comprehend what they were saying. They became more aggressive in their questioning. Had Gary ever been violent towards Judith? No, she protested vehemently. He was funny and kind and always smiling. Did Judith know that back in May 1982, Gary had been arrested for solicitation of an undercover police officer? Her fingers and lips went numb, anxiety spiking. No, she, she hadn't known about that because she didn't know Gary in 1982. Judith pinched herself hard. Detective Peters began delving into Judith and Gary's sex life, fueling a surge of anger in Judith. Stammering, she defended Gary as, quote, gentle, soft-spoken, always smiling and polite to her. Their sex life was beautiful, the best she'd ever had, end quote. Asking if they were into anything kinky, bondage, or having sex outdoors, Judith was aghast, like, no, why would they do that? As they spoke, the phone and doorbell began ringing. Going through the door, unsteady on her feet, Detective Peters slid her body between Judith and the opening, partially blocking the view of news reporters, but a cameraman got a few seconds of a strained, blank-eyed Judith. The word was out. Gary Ridgway had been arrested. Only Judith was in the dark. Detectives suggested that she unplug the endlessly ringing phone because they had something important to tell her. And then Judith's world imploded. Her husband, Gary Ridgway, had been arrested because evidence had tied him to the Green River murders. Gary was the Green River killer. Weak, tingling, in shock, her heart had slid sideways. Pre preposterous. Overwhelmed, Judith cried out in her mind, Gary, where have they taken you? I need you to hold me. They explained that Gary was a suspect for several years, that DNA collected from three victims matched Gary's DNA. Bawling her eyes out, Judith had no idea of any of it, not that Gary was a suspect, not anything. She just froze, suddenly exhausted. She learned the task force had been monitoring Gary and his activities, and then the detective suggested Judith pack a bag. They would take her to a hotel and register her under a different name to keep reporters away. And they needed to search her home. Judith agreed as her life shattered into a million slivers of mist. All right, my, my heart goes out to Judith, who is clearly completely shell-shocked by this revelation about the man she had built her life around. And this is just the beginning of her story. So let's find out how Judith got to this place in time. Born prematurely on August 15, 1944, to an 18-year-old Helen Downing in Chehalis, Washington, 
She was born in the waning years of World War II. The American invasion of Europe on June 6, 1944, D-Day, was only a few months before Judith was born. Judith's father, a 19-year-old soldier, Wesley Mawson, was off fighting, and Helen had no idea if Wesley was alive or dead when Judith came into the world. The only person Helen had to help her was her grandfather's brother, called Uncle Cy. A carpenter with no family of his own, he had taken in three-year-old Helen 15 years earlier. Her father unknown, Helen's biological mother, drank excessively, abandoning Helen and her other six children, and finally committed suicide. All right, if you have any thoughts of suicide, please ask for help and it will come. The number for the National Suicide Hotline is 988 and it is available 24-7. So please remember, 988. There are links to resources on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Helen and Uncle Cy lived in a modest house in a tiny hamlet, Vader, Washington. And I am going to spare you the Vader jokes here. On five acres, Uncle Cy had built the house himself. With no indoor plumbing or water, a well made it a cozy, if simple, home. With a garden and fruit trees, the little family managed along, and most of all, they had each other. The December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor that brought the U.S. into the war found employment for 16-year-old Helen, who went to work as a riveter at the nearby Boeing airplane factory. Shortly thereafter, Helen learned that her biological father was living in California. Meeting, they hit it off with Judith going to live with him for a time, building a bond. But homesick, Helen returned to Uncle Cy and resumed working at Boeing. And this is where Helen's life took a turn when she met Wesley Mawson, and she became pregnant with her soldier boyfriend heading off to fight the war. Darling, premature, Judith was born making their little family into a trio, and Uncle Cy placed little Judith in the same wooden cradle that had once held Helen. August 14, 1945, was VJ Day, as World War II was finally over. Wesley Mawson returned home and immediately proposed to Helen. They were married in the Latter-day Saints ward in Seattle, with Wesley taking a job as a logger. Like so many veterans, Wesley had struggled to transition back to civilian life. Restless, fidgety, unable to keep a job, after several moves, the marriage was foundering. And in 1949, Helen and Judith opted to move in with her father, who now lived in Kennedale, Washington. Judith recalls having the first TV on the block and watching Howdy Doody, and they had indoor plumbing. With Judith's grandfather's new wife cooking for the group, they showered affection on this little girl, the center of their world. By 1950, Helen had saved up enough to buy her own house, where she ran a rules-free home in a day where the norm was, spare the rod, spoil the child. Judith faced no real consequences for spilling food or jumping on the sofa. In 1950, the Korean War began, with Wesley Mawson re-enlisting. Sadly, September 2nd, Wesley stepped on a landmine near Seoul, South Korea, and was killed. A widow at 24, Helen welcomed in Uncle Cy, 
it was her turn to take care of him as they resumed their trio. A terrible event occurred when Judith was eight. Lured to a nearby playhouse, Judith was assaulted by some neighborhood boys attempting to rape her, but failed. In frustration, they slapped and beat Judith and ran off, leaving the stunned eight-year-old naked from the waist down. Helen rushed her daughter to the doctor, who confirmed that there had been no penetration, as Uncle Sly took a sledgehammer to the playhouse. While Judith's physical wounds healed, she would repress the memory of the attack, and she cried over her demolished playhouse. She would wonder for 54 years why it had fallen to pieces so suddenly. Helen went out on a blind date that proved fortuitous, meeting George Pilatos, the man she would spend her life with. George would prove to be a huge support to Helen. With Uncle Si's heart failing, he now needed a nursing home, and George helped Helen with this, even as the decision broke her heart. But soon they were back to being a trio, with George joining them, taking day trips. George adored Judith. They would often play with Judith wrapping her legs around George's waist, with him holding her hands, spinning about to Judith's squeals of laughter. Only this one time, something went wrong. George lost his grip, and Judith was dropped, hitting her head on the concrete floor. Nauseous with a big lump, they didn't blame George because accidents happened. But two months later, Judith began having terrifying seizures. Her neurologist diagnosed her with a brain seizure disorder and prescribed Dilantin. The medication would help reduce the number of seizures for a time. In 1955, Judith's longtime wish was granted when Helen and George married. Beaming, Judith finally had a real family and began calling George dad. George took his stepfather responsibilities very seriously now asking Judith to finish eating her dinner, not to interrupt when adults were speaking, and jumping on the furniture was no longer permitted. When she didn't listen, she was punished for breaking the rules. And Judith didn't understand. She'd never had rules before. Why was George putting all these new rules in place? Why did everything have to change? They'd been so happy. Age 12, Judith got her period, and the Delantin stopped preventing seizures. At school, classmates saw Judith fall down, wetting herself, making odd sounds, and they mercilessly bullied her for being a freak. Reading at the fourth grade level, Judith felt stupid, her self-esteem suffering. To complicate matters, a baby sister, Georgette, was born, and while the baby was fun at first, Judith wasn't allowed to hold her for fear that she would drop the baby during a seizure. Judith thought, that baby is ruining my life. She was angry. Her mom was completely absorbed in the baby and didn't love Judith as much. There was a new trio, and Judith was not included. After Uncle Cy passed away, Pennywood writes, quote, Judith's childhood entered a long tunnel of darkness. She was kicked out of school in the eighth grade, and in addition to her seizure disorder, her anger and aggression had increased to an unacceptable level. Teachers complained that Judith would create any kind of disturbance to gain attention, especially where boys were concerned, end quote. Judith was vandalizing, 
knocking over her desk in frustration, and ultimately was suspended from school for indecent behavior. She began seeing a hypnotherapist, which seemed to help a little. At age 15, Helen and George had another child, a boy they named Wesley, for Judith's deceased father. I just think that's sweet. They moved into a larger home in White Center near Seattle. While suffering a seizure, Judith dropped little Wesley. More problems arose. Now Judith smoked, boys were noticing her maturing curvy body, and she was beginning to experiment sexually, something no respectable young lady did in 1960. Her temper tantrums escalated, with Judith a danger to everyone around her. She was admitted to the Reither Child Care Center in Seattle, where she would be safe and monitored 24-7. Founded in 1883 by Olive Spore Reither, who, quote, had a vision for a warm, safe place where prostitutes, orphans, runaways, pregnant girls could live free from the dangers of the city streets, end quote. The goal? Self-sufficiency. Judith lived at Reither for approximately a year. Most of her time there is a blur from the many seizures that she suffered. While estranged from her family, she desperately wanted to go home, and her parents assured her that this was for her own good, as they faithfully visited every weekend, bringing her brother and sister too. While Judith ran away several times, she recalls the facility cook, Cheney, who always had time to speak with her, always providing loving smiles and kind words. At 16, completing her classes at Reither, Judith returned home very grateful. But by 17, another little sister had arrived, and Judith's life was becoming a frightening, unstable mess. This time, Judith was talked into a voluntary commitment at the Western State Hospital in Tacoma, called the Funny Farm by locals. Established in 1871, the Insane Asylum was built to house those who were a danger to society. Radical treatments, such as frontal lobotomies and ice water immersion, were practiced. By the 1960s, antipsychotic medications were available and replaced the former therapies. Today, it evaluates the alleged criminally insane and treats mental illness. This reminds me a little bit of the Lunatic Asylum from The Midnight Assassin two books back. But anyway, Judith retains little memory from her commitment at Western State Hospital, and she just accepted it as it was another place seeking a cure for her seizures. But she quickly found out this was not Reither Child Center, but a gigantic place with security and authority radiating from the sterile dormitory-type rooms. There, eight months, she recalled being afraid of the nurses who accused her of faking her seizures. Recognizing a friend from school, this girl pulled a prank with Judith being blamed for it and was stuck in solitary confinement for four days. Quote, Many years later, Judith would connect her extreme claustrophobia to being locked up in solitary. Some days in the mental hospital were pleasant. Every other weekend, her parents and little siblings made the drive to visit her. They gave her $5 so she could make purchases in the hospital store. End quote. They all enjoyed picnics on the huge lawns, which was more like a park than a facility. But still, Judith's record reveals several unauthorized leaves, her once being apprehended in Vancouver, Washington, two days later. 
Yet, Judith made some progress benefiting from group therapy and school-like activities, which she could receive outside the hospital. Thus, at age 18, Judith was released to her parents in December 1962, with her seizures under control as long as she took her meds four times a day. But Judith had never been to a dance, never driven a car, or graduated high school like most teens. Her feelings about being home were complicated. She'd never seen the Lake City house the family now lived in. Her brother and sisters had grown too, and she felt out of step with everyone. The same height and size as her mom, they now began sharing clothes. Eventually, the family settled into a stable routine, helping with the younger kids, making meals, washing dishes, although she was still not allowed to assist the kids alone because she could have a seizure. Given a small allowance, George said to her one day, quote, Now that you're an adult, Judith, you should buy your own cigarettes. End quote. This resonated with Judith, who felt accepted as an equal with her parents. They played cards together, drank coffee, and smoked, with Judith feeling mature. They still visited family. Judith loved her grandfather's cooking and ignored her step-grandfather's hands across her buttocks when no one was looking and his peeking at her while she was in the outhouse. Sick old jerk, I'd have had the guy arrested. Do not put up with this kind of nonsense. Ugh. Wanting to connect with people her own age, she joined a local Presbyterian church youth group. Having begun life as a Mormon, Helen converted to Jehovah Witness during her widowhood, with George converting when they married. However, not feeling particularly connected to either church, Judith was baptized Presbyterian in 1963. Among her fellow congregants, Judith felt at peace, at peace, feeling happy for the first time in her life, her anger dissolving. She became friends with a young man named Bob, who drove a red flashy car. One day at a church event, 20-year-old Judith was washing dishes when she heard organ music that gave her goosebumps. Who was playing, she asked Bob. Well, it was his friend, Lee Lynch. Introduced, they chatted for a while, with Lee asking Judith to go roller skating. While explaining she had epilepsy and had to take medication, Lee didn't care and he would be happy to show her how to skate. Judith didn't know it yet, but she had met her first husband. At five foot six, 1.68 meters, Lee seemed tall to Judith, sporting an academic look glasses, and short, dark hair. He seemed intelligent. Most importantly, Lee looked at her like a normal person, not a fragile, mentally ill freak. He was patient. He laughed at her stories, kissing her hand. And soon, it was love. In November 1964, she, Lee, Bob, and his girlfriend attended a ball with Judith feeling like Cinderella, hair piled on top, nylon stockings, pumps, and her mom's best dress. Having danced the night away, she and Lee stopped at the Black and Tan, a bar in downtown Seattle, with Judith totally violating doctor's orders and having a drink. How different was life from a year ago when she was in the mental hospital? Her assessment. Lee was 22. He had a good job at Bethlehem Steel. He had served two years in the Army. He lived alone in a house he owned 
and Judith moved into that house three months later. At Christmas, Lee proposed with Judith's dream of becoming a wife and mother within reach. Going to ask George for permission, he waved off Lee and indicating that he needed to speak with Helen. Helen wondered if Lee was interested in Judith or in her trust fund that she'd be able to access at 21 years old. It was Social Security money that Judith began receiving when Wesley was killed that Helen had faithfully deposited month after month, now about $10,000. All right, that's kind of a lot of money now. It was certainly a lot of money in the 60s. While Helen acquiesced, she and George would try to change Judith's mind, a daunting task. Cautioning her about her nest egg, Judith said she had a man who loved her, a fortune in the bank, and was going to move on with her life on her terms. They were married on January 16, 1965, at the Trinity Episcopalian Church in Seattle, because Lee liked the architecture. Not one person from Judith's family attended, a silent testament to their disapproval. Soon, her new mother-in-law was judging Judith as a low-class, uneducated high school dropout, plagued with a disease. Would her grandchildren be deformed? Aw, it's her heart. Don't you love that kind of mother-in-law? Lee's stepfather was no warmer, making snide remarks under his breath towards Judith. Hurt deep by her rejection, Judith did all she could to keep up appearances. Now, why Lee allowed this behavior to go on, I have no idea. I would never tolerate it, nor would my husband. Lee always wanted a Victorian home, and he settled for decorating their little house with heavy drapes and artwork for estate sales and antique stores. This set the tone formal and old-fashioned. Lee drove Judith around in a 1947 limousine, which left Judith feeling self-conscious until she began to enjoy playing madam to his gentleman caller. Well, this was fun. What a great husband she had. And she dove into typical housewife role, cooking meals she knew he'd enjoy, keeping house, and listening to Lee's dreams and plans. With new ties outside home, Lee began working on his wife's makeover. Taking her to uptown shops, he chose classy long dresses for Judith to wear, however impractical. Yeah, because you want to be wearing a gown when you're, you know, doing laundry and washing dishes. Their sex life was satisfactory, with Judith following Lee's lead, and she hoped to have a baby to show those who whispered behind her back, Judith can't have a baby, it wouldn't be normal. December 16, 1965, baby Marie joined her elated parents, and Marie was totally normal. Lee would play the piano, occasionally rocking the baby. He had joined the Bethlehem Steel Workers Union and started attending nightly meetings and came home tired, seeming to lose interest in Judith and Marie. Withdrawing $5,000 from Judith's trust fund, Lee purchased an early 1900s home in Wallingford, outside Seattle, with the family moving. Not permitted to listen to anything except classical music, he set up traps to catch Judith not cleaning properly. His stringent demands left Judith feeling like a failure as a wife. And then Lee began attending more and more union meetings, with Judith always reminding him not to miss dinner. As Marie grew, Judith became aware of the Vietnam War protest. 
scaring her almost as much as Lee adopting a hippie look with longer hair, bell-bottom jeans, so different from the slacks and white shirts. That December was their last Christmas with Marie because Lee decided they should become Jewish. It seems he had been attending Friday night Shabbat dinners with a friend, and he found the tradition and formality appealing. Now going to synagogue, a miserable Judith was completely lost in a ceremony she didn't understand, but she'd never challenged Lee. A second daughter, Rachel, arrived in July 1968 when Judith was 24. About the same time, she started seeing less and less of her husband as Lee worked more overtime shifts. But there was great news. Judith's seizures vanished completely, and she stopped taking her medication. And Lee left the mill to work at a local university with a very nice raise. As Judith tried to settle into a rhythm in the new house with two daughters, one night, Lee made an announcement. The union meetings he'd been attending, he confessed that that was not where he was actually going. Quote, You see, Judith, my lady, I am what they call bisexual. I have been going on dates with men. Judith felt complete bewilderment. She had trouble forming words. She asked, what's bisexual? End quote. Lee explained, telling her that they would remain married and he would go on dates with men. And she must tell no one about this, especially not at the synagogue. With two kittens, they appeared to be a normal, white, Jewish, middle-class family. Simmering, Judith was to resent being a dutiful wife, even after Lee bought his dream house, a Victorian mansion. Judith struggled to cope with the huge home, cleaning, laundry, preparing dinners for university colleagues that Lee invited over constantly as he mixed wine and marijuana, not to mention two little girls. Totally stressed out, Judith appealed to Lee. The girls were throwing temper tantrums, causing her to be anxious and stressed. She needed help. And while having zero empathy, Lee decided to take in boarders. They would live in the house, in the extra bedrooms, and be assigned duties, which would help out Judith. Lee bragged that he was a genius for coming up with such a great solution. Lee insisted that people refer to Judith as the queen. Well, one boarder soon became Judith's chauffeur, and another began cooking meals. With more people around, Marie and Rachel were entertained, and their behavior improved. So it had gone fairly well. And while it slowly came about, Lee had parties going on constantly, with them smoking weed and drinking in front of the girls. Expressing concern, Lee shushed Judith. As parties grew more intense, Lee would order Judith to just take, take the girls away. Over the next 10 years, quote, Lee immersed himself, Judith, and their daughters into a grand fantasy that would ultimately become his new reality, medieval times, end quote. Outside of work, Lee wore medieval costumes Judith made for him, velvet tunics, hats with feathers, wooden swords. Weekends and vacations revolved around the Society for Creative Anachronism campouts and events. Judith and the girls dressed up too, curtsying to my lord or my lady. Lee quickly rose to the rank of chancellor, who would officiate at festival weddings. Well, the problem? Lee couldn't turn it off at home, 
where he actually reigned as chancellor, got drunk and went to enjoy a male lover in one of their many bedrooms, the lord of the manor, the king of his castle. When Marie was in kindergarten, walking home, she was hit by a car and seriously injured, having emergency brain surgery to remove part of her skull. During the long recovery, Lee was annoyed and impatient. This was a distraction from his important social life, lording over his minions. Lee clearly favored Rachel, often denigrating Marie. By 1975, Lee threw wild sex orgies, and Judith had had it when one of the girls called out in shock, quote, Mommy, Daddy's with a naked man, end quote. That summer, Judith told Lee she was leaving, and he screamed, quote, Are you out of your damn mind? You can't leave. What are you thinking? You have no work skills. You have no insurance. You didn't even finish high school. What kind of job could you get? You are so stupid, Judith. You'll never see your daughters again, end quote. Crushed, she knew Lee was right. She hadn't finished high school. Well, she agreed to stay, but they'd have separate bedrooms, and a very unpleasant ten years went by. While Queen Judith endured a loveless, uncomfortable marriage, fear began taking root in the Seattle-Tacoma area as bodies of young women were being found. 1982, Wendy Lee Cofield's body was found floating in the Green River. Over the next weeks, seven more bodies were discovered, generating the Green River Killer moniker. Likely the first victim, Wendy Lee Cofield was a born rebel, strong-willed, short-tempered, impulsive, running away at age 12, trying to catch a ride from a truck stop. When her parents divorced in 1979, Wendy's behavior intensified. Virginia Cofield, her mom, said that she was, quote, wild in a lot of ways, but I don't think it was the harmful kind of wild, end quote. Living with her mom, they struggled financially. In summers, they would pick blackberries to supplement their meals. Wendy dropped out of junior high school. By 1982, she was working as a sex worker, drinking, and doing drugs. At her wit's ends, Victoria said her daughter had run away from unhappiness while seeking excitement. She was 16 when the Green River Killer murdered her. Another of the early victims was 16-year-old Opal Mills, the biracial daughter of Robert and Kathy Mills and sister to Garrett. Pushy sister, she warned Garrett when he was doing things he wasn't supposed to do, but she also sought to protect him. At age eight, Opal had learned a plaque from her church for memorizing 50 Bible verses. She completed ninth grade at Kent Junior High School and is remembered for going on diets all the time, although no one thought she needed to which tells us a little bit about her self-esteem. Of Opal, Garrett said she was, quote, the last best friend I ever had. We were always together except those last three days, end quote. Robert, a retired forklift driver, firmly insisted that his daughter was not a sex worker and had never been arrested. Like many kids, she had had difficulties, but they were a close family. 17-year-old Cynthia Jean Hines disappeared on August 11, 1982. Known as Cookie, Cynthia was born on February 23, 1965, to Marilyn Marshall. 
single, living in an apartment in Ranier Valley. Her father, Robert Williams, last saw Cynthia at a barbecue restaurant where he worked. Typical teenager, she had wanted $10 to go shopping. Her brother, Terry, describes Cookie. Quote, she was a human being, and she still had a family that cared and loved her. And my sister was a sweet person, a caring person. She was loved by a lot of people. End quote. Arizona native Marcia Chapman was a petite woman. 31 years old, described as cheerful, outgoing, and confident that she could handle herself in a pinch. Living at the Puerta Villa Apartments near the SeaTac Airport with her three children, her neighbor called her tiny, given Marcia's petite stature. Neighbor Don Moore told the Times that Marcia, quote, was a nice girl. She would speak to you, stand and talk to you. She was a hell of a nice kid, end quote. Marcia was arrested for prostitution in the South King County area two months before she was reported missing by her mom. Marcia had told her kids she was going to the store. With four bodies growing to seven quickly, a task force was established to find this killer. Judith was blissfully unaware. After a decade of physical and mental abuse by her dad, Judith's teenage daughter Marie ran away, opting to live on the streets. By 1984, Judith had been working at her synagogue's daycare. With no seizures for 10 years, Judith now had a driver's license. She could earn money on her own, and it took some negotiations, but Lee amicably let her divorce him, with Judith receiving $5,000 from the $50,000 sale of their big house. What a generous guy, huh? Rachel would live with Lee while Judith got on her feet, and it wasn't easy but she prayed for a normal life with a normal man. By the end of December 1984, 31 bodies had been found, the belief that a single killer was on the hunt for prey. The change? Clusters. Police were now finding groups of bones of multiple victims. For example, 22-year-old Kelly Marie Ware, also known as Kelly Ideas was born November 17, 1960. Kelly's skeletal remains were found near those of Constance Neon and Mary Bridget Meehan. Constance Neon's parents had looked forward to seeing her on June 8, 1983. She had called, saying she was picking up her paycheck from the sausage factory where she worked, and she would be there in 20. But Constance was never seen nor heard from again. She was only 20 years old. An outgoing, vivacious teen, Mary Meehan, was also incredibly stubborn. Knowing her family was allergic, Mary brought home stray cats anyway, hiding them in her room. (laughs) Mary suffered from a hearing disorder, which caused her to have academic problems, but it did not impact her artistic talent. In 1982, Mary moved out, although she phoned her parents regularly. Struggling, Mary miscarried twice. Using marijuana and LSD, Mary made an effort to get back on track, attending group therapy meetings at Youth East Side Services. When she became pregnant for a third time, Mary gave up her son for adoption. She conceived yet again within a month. All right, this time she was determined to turn things around by keeping this child and getting her GED. At 18, 
Mary was almost eight months pregnant and was last seen at the Western Six Motel on September 15, 1983, and her body was found near Constance and Kelly Marines. Two others were found in these early days. Tina Marie Thompson was 21 years old when the authorities contacted her family about her remains being found. Estranged, they hadn't heard from her in over four years, which tells me she'd gotten deep into sex work. She'd last been seen on July 15, 1983. And in 1984, Mary Exeta West was last seen in the Granier Valley neighborhood on February 6th. She was currently living with her aunt and was described as a quiet girl who was always thoughtful about coming home on time. But according to a friend of hers, Mary was dealing with a serious problem. Three months pregnant, she didn't know what she was going to do when she began to show. She was only 16 years old when she left to go to the store and vanished. February 1985, quote, Judith was 40 years old and finally free from the stranglehold of her dysfunctional 19-year marriage. She was learning how to function as a single woman and was living in a tiny, low-rent apartment on Highway 99, South Seattle. She found a decent roommate with whom to share expenses, end quote. She could now listen to country music without fear that Lee would toss her records into the air as skeet, shooting them with a shotgun. What an absolute jerk. And she'd met friends through parents without partners. Out enjoying a beer and country music one night, Gary came over and introduced himself. He was celebrating his 36th birthday and would she care to dance? I have to tell you, I have never considered serial killer Gary Ridgway doing country line dancing. It just uh, didn't come to me. Lots and lots of insights into the story. So Judith accepted, but she was worried that Gary was a little young because she was almost five years older. But their undeniable chemistry and easy conversation found them perfectly in sync. When he planted a quick kiss on her lips, she giggled as she hadn't in ages. They went out for breakfast and then went back to Gary's friend's home for coffee. Gary and Judith talked for hours. She liked his look, his smile, his easy demeanor. And he was such a gentleman, a caring dad with a steady long-term job, and he owned his own home. Quote, Judith had a premonition that everything was going to be all right if she remained near Gary. End quote. When they began kissing, Gary paused, asking her if she was comfortable, was this all right? And it was. She didn't want the night to end, happily giving him her phone number. Would she hear from the polite, remarkable man she had just met? Now remember, Judith missed her teenage years due to her epilepsy and hospitalizations. She didn't go to high school. She didn't date in high school. She didn't graduate from high school. She married a jerk who manipulated and abused her for 20 years. She couldn't drive most of her life, which prevented her from having a job and any independence. Now, her priority is not catching up on the news. She did not know that two days before she met Gary, he was sitting in the Green River Killer Task Force office being questioned about his connection to sex workers who had been killed. Gary admitted choking Rebecca Gardy Gway in 1982 during a date, but that was because she had bitten him and made him angry and then she'd run off. Shown photos of the Green River Killer's victims, he admitted he might have dated a few of them over the years, 
but there was no other evidence. Released, Gary went about his life, and he called Judith and asked her out. Primping, finishing her hair, the doorbell rang, and there was neat, trim, freshly shaven Gary in cowboy attire. What knocked her off her feet? The manly aroma of him. Masculine soap, deodorant, and Old Spice. She momentarily flashed to Lee, wearing her pantyhose, underwear, gleefully prancing around their house. The contrast was severe. She was going out with a real man. He opened and closed the car door for Judith, asking her what she'd like to have for dinner, flashing a brilliant smile. New to the area, she let Gary pick, and they hit one of the local diners. He never made her feel stupid about her lack of education. He was plain-spoken and considerate. Now they began seeing each other regularly. They'd enjoy McDonald's for breakfast, holding hands before he headed out to work on second shift. After a month, Gary wanted her to see his place in the T-Sac area. It was a smaller, simple ranch, appealingly modern to Judith, minus the lack of carpets. Gary explained the missing carpet. He'd taken in some borders for extra money, and their kids had urinated on it, and it stunk so bad he'd ripped it out. He invited her to help him pick out new carpet, with Judith eagerly agreeing. Are you buying Gary's carpet story? I'm not so sure. Eventually, Gary and Judith became intimate. Judith felt herself flushing with pleasure and began to undress, but Gary stopped her. They needed to wash first. She would learn that Gary's lovemaking style matched his gentle personality, which she appreciated. Lee had made her feel self-conscious and uncomfortable. Gary was considerate of her needs, a first for her. It wasn't long before Gary gave her a key to his house as she basked in the warmth of his trust. She let herself in while he was at work, straightening up his messy bachelor pad, feeling blessed to have such a nice, normal man in her life. She was in love. She'd get into bed waiting for him to come home, at the same time every night, same greeting. Hi there, what's new? Covered in paint from the factory, he'd head into the shower to clean up, and then he'd check. Did you wash? And of course she had. All right, insight. Gary's worried about STDs. He had picked up many in the past, and this was something he did not share with Judith, and he did not plan to share with Judith. So washing before sex is a preventive measure. Would this be a red flag to anyone that someone wants to wash before sex? Probably not. While admiring his taunt body, she asked about a scar on his arm. How had that happened? Quote, oh, this? One time I was working on a car and it caught fire and it was pretty bad. End quote. Realizing he didn't like to talk about it, she never brought it up again. The thing is, this isn't true. Two years before they met, Gary was attacking victim Marie Malvar in the very house that he was making love with Judith. Trying desperately to escape Gary strangling her, Marie had gouged his arm with her fingernails. After he murdered her, Gary dumped her body near Mount View Cemetery in Auburn. He disguised the deep gashes and poured battery acid over it, creating the burn scar. Would you have questioned Gary's explanation? I don't think I would have, and I'm suspicious as anything. You can let me know what you're thinking at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or on Twitter 
Facebook, Instagram. May. Judith moved in with Gary with the new wall-to-wall carpet, replacing the other in which he had rolled up a murdered woman's body and dumped her in the woods. It was time to meet the family. Tom and Mary Ridgway welcomed Judith warmly. Mary, a sales clerk at JCPenney Department Store, appeared classy and smart to Judith, who realized Gary deeply respected her opinions. When Judith learned that Mary was five years older than Tom, she laughed, feeling a warm, close bond forming between the women. She instantly fell in love with Gary's grandma, a sweet, wise old woman, and she finally met Gary's son, Matthew, age 10, and they hit it off, too. Gary also met Judith's parents, Helen and George, and Rachel, her youngest daughter, plus two of her four grandchildren. Rachel was attending a special high school where her two babies could be cared for while she was at class. Marie had had children, too, who were placed with Lee when Marie went back to the streets after each birth. The same streets the Green River Killer stalked on the prowl for a new victim. And they settled into a comfortable, caring existence, taking trips on the weekend, visiting with Gary's son, going to the zoo, the grandkids joining them often. It was a normal family with Judith thriving. She was so proud of Gary, contributing to Kenworth Truck's success over the decades that he'd worked as a painter. They loved attending their open house events, held several times a year. With other employees waving and saying hello, she thought that Gary was appreciated and respected. Touring the Grand Coulee Dam, Petrified Forest, ferry rides, they really enjoyed themselves. She envied the close bond between Gary and Matthew, who seemed to go off into their own private little bubble sometimes, excluding Judith. But Judith had her own thing and went to her ex-roommate's wedding and caught the bouquet. Would she marry Gary? Gary announced that they were all going to Disney in Southern California. Utterly elated, Judith pinched herself. They drove in the camper, pausing along the way at tourist destinations, taking photos. They even stopped at Ridgeway's Restaurant and Lounge in Modesto, which belonged to a cousin. She was more starstruck than before. These were successful people. At Disney, she and Matthew, quote, cut loose. They sprinted from one ride to the next, jumping up and down with excitement, and hounded Gary for snacks and souvenirs, end quote. They simply had a blast. And Christmas was back. Tree, lights, presents, decorations, children and grandchildren around her. Judith felt at peace and blissfully happy, especially when Gary suggested the little ones call him Grandpa. April 8, 1987. Three very tall men dressed in suits showed up at Judith's daycare and were directed towards a bewildered Judith. Oh my God, I hope my parents are all right, she thought. I probably would have thought the same thing. Going with them to their car, they were detectives and they had some questions for her about Gary. While her memory of this is rather hazy, Judith recalls them saying that she had to leave their home for two or three days and that this was in regard to the Green River Killer case. She cried a lot, and the phone was ringing when she got home. It was Gary's mother, assuring her that this is a terrible mistake, that she and Tom were just livid. What was wrong with these people? And, of course, she would stay with them. After three days of searching the house, his personal locker at Kenworth, 
and Gary giving them hair samples and his saliva, which would ultimately be the source of his DNA undoing, Gary was home. Kissing, hugging, a calm Gary reassured Judith, quote, sometimes the police make mistakes. They probably picked up 40 guys just like me, but hey, they sent me home, right? Obviously, I'm innocent if they let me go home, end quote. Judith felt tremendous relief, and what pissed Gary off was the police had put a dent in the hood of his truck. He asked for Judith's help in filing the claim, and she put the form in a drawer where Gary had newspaper clippings about the Green River Killer case. Hmm. Well, they forgot about the claim, but the form and the clippings were in the drawer 14 years later when Gary did not return home again. You know, I do not mean to be critical of Judith, and I'm into true crime, which of course reflects on how I think, but I'm not sure I would just flow with this. I mean, I'd be asking some hard questions, like, why are the police interested in you in the first place? What did they ask? All right. Well, Matthew resumed coming for weekends, camping, hiking, cruising garage sales, going to county fairs. And in early 1988, Judith suggested they get married with Gary agreeing. Invitations were sent. And on June 12, 1988, in a neighbor's yard with beautiful landscaping, friends, family, and a single colleague from Kenworth, Jim Bailey, attended. Judith donned a calf-length, raspberry-colored lace dress with a satin sash around her hips that she'd found for $20 in a thrift shop, the most beautiful dress she had ever seen. Gary and Judith exchanged wedding vows. On a sunny, perfect 72-degree day, parents smiling, and she carried the bouquet she caught at her friend's wedding. She reflected, quote, I'm marrying Gary. I only knew Lee for three months before I married him. This time, I lived with Gary for three whole years. This time, I was smart, end quote. Oh, Judith. Dancing to their favorite artists, Barry Manilow, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, they ate chicken casserole, potato and macaroni salad, scalp potatoes, and took a lovely photo of a beaming Gary and Judith with their parents. And this concludes episode 59, Medieval Times. She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood, part one. Coming up in episode 60, The Dark Ages, the Ridgeways settle into a comfortable married life and more skeletal remains are found all over the SeaTac area. Uh, how about a five-star review, Murder Bookies? You can help me grow the podcast by taking a few minutes to leave a review. And thank you for listening. You can email me at jill at com, or find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out my blog and my merch store on Spreadshop. Link is on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. I'll see you next episode. Always trust your gut and happy reading murder bookies. Source material, show notes, photographs, snack and drink information for She Married the Green River Killer by Penny Wood are found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbach.